As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. sound than dropping a needle on a record and hearing that crackle. The crackle right before the actual record starts. I grew up with this listening to my parents' records and maybe because this was the original way that we recorded and distributed music, the experience feels rich. It's more than just putting on music but you're putting on a record. It's a very purposeful event And throughout the course of us consuming and distributing music from tapes to CDs and now to digital, we've never been able to recreate that experience. 
She sang me tables when she used to rap me threads. She said me look like me, girl, poppy, now he dead. And I know I'm not the only one that feels this way because final sales are at the highest point they've been since 1988. They've been growing steadily since 2008 and now represent a $416 million industry. And they're sold at chains like Barnes & Noble, Urban Outfitters, and even Whole Foods. And this is a stark contrast from even when I was a kid and we would go to record stores and we'd dig through crates and crates of used records trying to find a gem. There was no way I was buying my records at the grocery store. So what does this mean for the music industry? Well, over the last eight years, even mainstream artists have been paying attention. And so now you have people like Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift releasing limited edition vinyl because people are buying it. Some part of their fan base is asking them for vinyl, saying, I still want to put the Biebs on vinyl. So... This is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about gathering customer feedback, looking at data from the marketplace and from your customers. What do people want and how do we use that in our product so we can be a good product manager? All that coming right up. Welcome to Rocketship.fm podcast where we explore startups from funding to growth, from culture to sales and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Goldman. So welcome to the third episode in our product series. If you're just joining us, go back and listen to the first two. We've covered the history of the baseball cap and last week we covered jobs to be done. And today we'll be talking about customer interviews and gathering data to inform your product decisions. We have the story of an $80,000 purchased in the wrong color, and we have the story of a company that actually tried to get their bike stolen in the name of user research. So that and much, much more coming right up. So one of the things that we talked about last week was learning what problems your customers have. This means watching what your customers do, listening to what your customers say, identifying their problems, but not necessarily giving them exactly what they're asking for. It's about actually solving the problem in an effective way. If we were back in the early 1900s and everyone was riding around on horses and you asked them, how could this be better? They'd say, a more comfortable saddle. But no one would have said, I want a car. But our job as product people is to listen to that feedback, to hear what problems they have, and to figure out how to solve them in a better way. So I was talking to Ben Foster, and he had this great story about Sony testing out multicolored boomboxes. There's this legend that I often tell, uh, you know, product managers that I've just hired who are relatively new. Um, that I think this one comes from like the eighties. Uh, and it comes from Sony where they were developing these, these boom boxes, you know, that were really popular at the time. And you know, it was kind of like this personal stereo where, uh, if you go to the store, you just see that every single one of these things is black, you know, every once in a while there might be a silver one, but they're all these kind of like muted plain kind of like colors. And 
uh, you know, there's this executive from Sony who said, hey, wait, you know, music of all things is, is this expressive, you know, art, right? And, you know, wouldn't people love to be expressive with the design of their stereo as well? So his idea was to take the boom box and offer it in various colors, bright colors, red, yellow, golds. And he thought, these would these would sell you know like crazy off the shelves and so he got together a bunch of focus groups and talked to customers and really asked them you know would you buy something like this what would you like about it etc and they did a ton of talking and in every single one of these focus groups uh, they got this overwhelmingly positive response about these really colorful boom boxes that they could go sell and so the executive was really excited about this and he went up to his boss and said Look, I've done the user testing. I did all of these focus groups and everyone is saying that they will buy these. I think these will fly off the shelf like hotcakes. And the boss, you know, sort of shook his finger and was like, nope, you know, I know what you don't know here. The guy's like, yeah, but I've done all these focus groups. So he says, we'll do one more focus group and I'll show you what I mean. boss goes to the focus group this time, goes through exactly the same thing, uh, run, runs it the same way, gets exactly the same feedback, which is that, you know, everybody would like to buy one of these colorful stereos. But his boss knew better than to just listen to what the customers were saying. He wanted to observe their actual actions. And so uh, as a thank you gift for their participation in the uh, in the focus group, he says, you're welcome to take one of these home. And he has, of course, the colorful ones, but he also has the black version of the same one. And every single person, even though they had just said, you know, I would totally buy the colorful one. I think it's great. It's really cool. Here's why. You know, it was like they always had some excuse. It was like, well, you know, the rest of my components are all black, so I guess it wouldn't really like fit in exactly. Or, you know, uh, well, you know, I'm actually buying this for my cousin, or I'd give it to him, so I'm not sure that he'd want. I wouldn't know what color to get, so I guess I'll just go ahead and get the black one. And it was funny because every single one of these twelve participants goes and walks out with a black boombox. And his boss looks back and he's like, "Well, there you go. I I told you." At the heart of any data and data collection is the customer. So I talked to Bob Moesta, one of the architects of the Jobs to Be Done framework, about who he tries to talk to and what he's trying to get out of that conversation. And he talks about finding a technology agnostic solution. The notion here is this, is that if I can understand what caused you to buy my condo, so I would actually, I only interview people who have already made the progress. So somebody who, I don't want to buy interview somebody who wants to buy a house. I actually interview people who have already bought the house. Because in that process of doing so, they actually have all these forces that push them and pull them, but they also had anxieties along the way. They also had habits that they had to overcome. And what happens is, is when they're in the midst of it, they actually don't, none of those are as explicit or they're, they're, if you will, in the subconscious. But afterwards, you can actually pull them back and say like, yeah, this and this happened. And I'm like, well, why would you do that? And you just dig and you dig and you start to realize like, well, I was really worried about something. So identifying the anxieties can be an extremely important aspect of these customer interviews and it can be extremely telling. But how do we get there? How do we find out what those anxieties are? I'm actually just trying to get the truth. 
But what you realize is we start to actually when we, when we for, so we never talk to people who want to do something. We talk to people who have actually tried and either failed or made it, but they're they're past the past the decision point. They've made some kind of commitment to do something because if I interview people who just want to buy a house and they're like, I'm, I'm in the market and I'm looking, what happens is you get, I want five bedrooms, I want three and a half baths, I want granite countertops, I want, they want, I want, I want, because there's no money involved. But the reality is when they purchase, there is no purchase that is ideal. Every purchase has a trade-off in it. And ultimately, I'm trying to use trade-offs to understand the hierarchy of what's important to them. So we're going to hear a story about this that includes a high-end sports car purchased in the wrong color and why the owner was just okay spending $80,000 to get the color that he didn't quite want right after a word from our sponsors. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. And if you know what movie that quote was adapted from, tweet us at rocketshipfm and we'll send you a special prize. Now back to the show. So Bob had this story about a friend of his who had just bought a brand new Audi. $80,000 car, absolutely gorgeous. Drives up, like, wow, this thing is beautiful. He goes, yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it's gray. I'm like, wait, and it's is his face. I'm like, what? He goes like, well, you know, I wanted white. I'm like, but, but you just bought an $80,000 car and it's not the color you want? He goes, yeah, I had to wait two more weeks. Two weeks. That's all he had to wait. Two weeks. He'll probably have the car for five or 10 years. Well, it couldn't have been that important then. Like at some point it's like, if you could have waited two weeks, you could rent a car for that. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, and it's one of those things where it's like, you start to realize like we make trade-offs and as much as says, God, I really want white and I would say white all the time the, the reality is they, he wanted the car and he wanted to have you know there's a whole bunch of other things that were at play and despite the fact of what he said he wanted he was able willing to trade off and so part of it is the value code of how people are how these things are helping them make progress that value code is embedded in all the trade-offs they make so the interviews are all about finding the trade-offs and oftentimes those are wrapped up with anxieties so why are people being pulled away from purchasing your product? Those are things that in the customer interview, those are data points that you want to find out. Why are they purchasing? Why are they not purchasing? And Bob describes this as almost an interrogation. He says his tactics are closer to an interrogation than an interview. So the method is really based on um, interrogation. And so it's both criminal and intelligence interrogation technique more than it is uh, interview and and research, and so and so we're we're trying to actually build the timeline of why you know what caused people to get to this house, and so you 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 figure out when they bought, but you back it all the way up. And so the goal is to know when they first thought about making a purchase, and then every step in between to where they actually made the purchase. And here you can start to identify 
the whys of the purpose. You can identify some of the anxieties, some of the hurdles that they have to overcome to make the purchase and some of what pulled them to the purchase. And when you understand all of those things, you can make very informed product decisions. Now, what are some other methods that you can use? Well, I talked to Ben Foster and here was some of his advice. There's always going to be the, the five whys question. I think it's kind of classic. Is, you know, every time somebody asks you for a new feature, you ask, well, why do you want that? And then they might tell you, well, because I use this thing this way and it's hard to use. And well, why is it hard to use? And you know, you can keep asking why. And a lot of times you you do get a good sense as to what their true motivations are and what problems are that they're that they're really trying to solve. So I think that's kind of like one one basic one. I think that the other question that you need to that you need to ask is is you need or maybe it's not even a question that you ask you might still do it through observation is not just watching your customers use your product um, a lot of times people kind of like start the clock when they open up your application and then they stop the clock when they close it and they're not thinking about the question of why did they decide to use your application at that time? What were they doing before that? What were they doing after that? How does the product fit into the broader context of the user's daily life, whether that's a consumer using Facebook or whether that's you know somebody in the B2B world using you know uh, some other like software tool like Excel? You know, why is it that they decide to to use those things at those times? Um, once you understand those kinds of things better and you start asking questions around that, that's where you really start to understand the broader you know, opportunities that are there, you know, maybe, you know, Microsoft sort of figures out that Excel and Word and all these other kinds of things should integrate better with themselves because they were kind of flipping back and forth between these different applications. But if you're a product manager and you're only looking at your own one little product, you don't really see those integration opportunities that are, that are there. And so while it's great to interview people about how they use your application, you can also ask why they use your application and what other applications they use. And what does their day look like when they're using your application? This will give you a wider view of where you come in, where you fit into their day, and even give you some insight into other problems that you could solve so that they're using your product more. You know, if you actually, if you wanted to design Facebook, you wouldn't think about the next Facebook feature by watching people use Facebook when they're just, you know, writing posts or sharing pictures. You'd think about, their time using other applications, right? You think about the signup flow for other apps that they're using and realize that, hey, I've already got authentication built into Facebook. Why don't I take that authentication piece, build that as sort of like, you know, Facebook Connect, and then we can build authentication through Facebook into these other applications that these guys are using as well. You know, why don't we do it that way? And those are the kinds of things you start to see when you start to look outside the bounds of your user's interaction with just your own product. Um, so I think those kinds of things are, are really important questions for folks to be asking um, that often sort of like get missed in the day-to-day slog of you know looking through analytics and metrics and things like that around your own product. And another fantastic way to test is through what's known as a paper prototype. Last year, we talked with Leslie Bradshaw about some of her methods when it came to gathering data about a product or new feature. It's never too early to start prototyping the idea in digestible, very low fidelity ways. And and one can just be as simple as sketching the idea on a piece of paper and testing it that way. That That's a paper prototype, right? Mm-hmm. It saves you on the design, saves you on coding, and you really start getting a sense of trying to articulate the feature 
you don't want to put all the features of the product in one go on one piece of paper, but maybe you have two or three features you're thinking about. Create three different prototypes and put it in front of your audience, you know, your your 10 to 20 testers. And each time come at it with a hypothesis of what you think people will do, but be open and be ready for the evidence to say otherwise. And after you get that feedback, you make the adjustments to the prototype and go to the next level of fidelity. And I think the most important thing there is being open and ready for your mind to be changed. When people start using your idea, we don't want to get so caught up on the feature or the future or our business as a whole, that when we start testing, we're only looking for things that validate those ideas. That's probably the worst thing that we can do. We need to be open and ready for our idea to be unvalidated. It's like Bob said, if he can't find a job, then there is no product there for him. Companies go through crazy measures in order to validate this because it's so important to get right. And Ben Foster had this incredible story from a startup that he was advising. And this might be the most extreme case that I have heard, but they're a bike rental company. And here's what happened. Uh, yeah, you know, I was on the phone with a company that uh, that was trying to make a bicycle that was less likely to be stolen. And it was really kind of this interesting proposition. It, you know, a lot of times bicycle theft is one of the major reasons that people don't buy nicer bikes. So they, they had this kind of like, I think it was like an electric bike um, that, that they were looking into. And um, they realized they could have GPS and all these other kind of technologies embedded that would help prevent it from getting stolen. But at the same time, they didn't really understand the bicycle thief and, and how they sort of operate and how they think. So this was a case where they didn't want to just do user research of, you know, the people who would actually buy and use their bicycles, but they really want to understand the thieves themselves and try to understand, you know, how can we prevent this bike from being stolen by somebody? What would actually deter a thief and what wouldn't? And so it was this really interesting case of needing to do the user research basically on these, on these thieves. So that, you know, I was on the phone with them and trying to understand their product a little bit. And they were just kind of telling me very matter of fact, like, you know, well, we, we did a bunch of user research on thieves and we, you know, really tried to understand, you know, what their motivations were, et cetera. I'm like, wait, you know, how did you go about doing this? I can't imagine bike thieves are really easy to find. It's not a post on Facebook that you can put out and say, hey, I'm looking to talk to 10 bike thieves this week. Do you know any? So instead they went about it much like Wiley Coyote trying to catch a roadrunner. They would take a bicycle, like a regular bike or like a nice bike, and they'd park it in um, you know some city. And then they'd kind of like lurk in the shadows and in like behind the bushes and things like that. And they'd wait for a bicycle thief to show up. And then as soon as the, the person tried to steal the bike, they'd kind of like run him down. And instead of, uh, they, they kind of give him like an ultimatum, like we can either turn you into the police or we can interview you. <laughs> And, uh, and, and so they, of course, they always take the interview, right? And so they basically had this opportunity to kind of like interview all these bicycle thieves to kind of figure out like, you know, why did you choose this bike instead of the other five bikes that were there? Uh, you know, what is the kind of thing that you're like looking for, et cetera? And it was interesting. These guys actually like spilled their guts to them about their whole strategy for, for stealing bikes. And they, they, they continued to kind of like invent new things that would deter bike thieves from stealing a bike using technology and sounds and all this other kind of stuff like alarms and stuff like that. Um, 
and, and they were able to, to get a pretty good answer as to what it would take to make a bike that was just sort of like more theft deterrent, I guess. Um, but it, to me, it was just a funny story of the links to which companies will go um, to really try to understand their users. And it's, it's, you know, it's not just their users, it's everybody else who's going to interact with the product as well. So if there's anything to take away, it's to think through the whole process and to be collecting both qualitative and quantitative data on each step, on everything that you're trying to improve to help inform your decision, to help you identify anxieties, pushes and pulls of why people would buy or not buy your product, and try to figure out ways to test this that are fast, simple, and relatively inexpensive before you you take that leap to go build something new. So now next week, we're going to take a look at how you can use this data to make a gut call. What's the next step in determining what to build for your product? And it's knowing when to use data and when to use your gut. And so we're going to talk about that. We've got a few really great stories on people who have followed their gut or didn't and lost. So that coming up next week. So subscribe. You're not going to want to miss it. Huge thanks to Ben Foster today who helped us plan a lot of the content in this episode. You go to foster-innovation.com and connect with Ben. He's actively looking for teams to advise. And I spent a couple hours on the phone with him during this series And I think you would be lucky to have him as an advisor. So reach out to Ben. He would love to hear from you. Huge thanks to Bob Moesta for coming on and talking to us about the jobs to be done techniques that he uses. Big thanks to Leslie Bradshaw, Made by Many. Big thanks to our sponsors today, Brand Bucket, where you can get your brand name, domain name, and logo all in one location for one fixed price, just like Mattermark. Go to brandbucket.com forward slash rocket ship. And of course, Chargebee. Chargebee is the easiest way for you to set up your subscription billing. Go to chargebee.com forward slash rocket ship and get started for free. I did a bit of research for this episode on newscloud.io. It helps to aggregate different articles around specific topics that you're found in your Twitter feed. If you have an app, send it to us. Let us know what you're working on. And if it's something that we use, we'll talk about it here on the air. So if you're enjoying this series, make sure that you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Let us know why you're listening. And follow us on Twitter, RocketShipFM. You can follow me at Michael Saka and Joel at Joel Goldman. All right, we'll see you back here on Sunday for our Sunday interview all about 